0: We are landing a summer series around the letter to the Hebrews. Now remember this. Whenever we do something like this, this was not the way it was done. The church in the first century were really groups of people meeting in houses. Francis Schaeffer in his great series that shaped me philosophically in the 70s uh, spoke about how the church met in smaller groups around the table. They would eat together. Then they would sing a hymn together just like Jesus and his disciples did. And then they would open up the scroll, a copy of a letter or something from the Old Testament or the Torah, and they would read that. And uh, there would be such power in the reading of the scripture. And uh, there might be a teacher. We know that from the text that there were teachers, male and female, who got up and uh, kind of opened up the scriptures to give meaning to the things that were said. We are very familiar with the scriptures, most of us, some are not, obviously, and I respect you kind of joining in with us tonight. But um, there is something sublime about opening up the scriptures and the words that come out of the text itself. So uh, I want you to grab your Bibles and I want to, you to land with us in Hebrews in the 13th chapter. Now, I, wanted to deci- I decided tonight to be friend or foe. Friend, or let me say foe first, is I said to Meryl, There are four points clearly in this passage that kind of self-select themselves, and I can try to do all four, but I think it's going to be 50 minutes. Now, if I was a John Tyson, he spoke for one hour, 20 minutes, and that was completely captivating. Now, I fortunately am not at all uh, able to compare to his great linguistic skills, his immeasurable knowledge. And uh, so I said, well, we can do it for 50 minutes, or we can do it for 25. Meryl instantly said, 25. I took that as a compliment. I chose to believe my wife is compelled by my teaching. Then I said to Sam and Dana and Tyler, what do you think? And there was kind of consensus, let's do 25. So there's a watch up there that's screaming at me, and we're going to try our best to give half of Hebrews 13 tonight and half of it next week. Um, I arrived at a friend's house. Some, I'd known them for a few years, and uh, he, he had a daughter in the 20s, and we'd had some contact. I mean, not an amazing amount, but the one night she had had a couple of drinks, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, I don't trust you. Now, I know she was abused by a youth pastor. And, um, and I knew it wasn't personal. And I looked at her, and I obviously won't mention her name, and I said, yes, I do. I know you don't trust me. My sadness is I've never been able to win that trust. Trust is a high virtue in the kingdom. I know we all have our virtues that we give great value to. But trust is one of the highest virtues in the text in the heart of God. We sang some of those beautiful songs, hymns, anthems tonight around how faithful you are, how trustworthy you are. And uh, I am very aware that for some of you, that's not true. That's not true of God. Your experience of Him is He's not trustworthy. The prayers you've prayed have not been answered. The wrestles you've had, He's not solved. The experiences you've had, He's not softened. It's been a brutally difficult time for you. So I'm not ignorant of the fact that trust is not necessarily one of the values and virtues you have affection for let's read the passage and um, i will open it up just a little bit as i read it you with me is that good okay hebrews chapter 13 and we are only going to do a section of it keep on loving one another it's one of the great little phrases throughout the book One another or let us. As brothers and sisters, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. You know, one of the interesting personalities in the New New Testament is a man called Aristarchus. And Aristarchus, who appears in Colossians at the end of the book, I was studying Colossians uh, some years ago. And the commentator made an incredibly interesting point. He said it wasn't uncommon in those days when a person of high influence was imprisoned within the Roman prison system that they could bring someone with them. In other words, someone who wasn't accused of nor convicted of crimes, but who would choose to be incarcerated so that he or she could serve this person. And the commentator said he believes that Aristarchus went to prison. Paul says he was imprisoned with me. He actually went there. To be a brother, to be a friend, to be a co-laborer, to be a colleague in ministry. And if Paul was in prison, he would be in prison. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a different story? Doesn't that tell us that this kingdom thing is completely other? Nothing we know really. And obviously I'm South African by birth, been here 25 years. Most of you are American by birth. Um, and, And so the kingdom of God is completely different to anything you've lived in. It's the other. It's not right or left. It's certainly not middle or mediocre. It's other. That's why it was so offensive when Jesus started talking about the gospel of the kingdom, because they did not know what that meant. And here, the writer, and I think it's Priscilla, myself, others say it's Apollos or Paul or Barnabas, take your pick. But continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all sexual immorality. Keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Leaders, that's why you will be put in positions where the only way through is faith. Not management, not control, not organization, not planning, not strategy. The only thing, the key to the door is faith. Why? Because those around us need to imitate what we have. Um, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, dear 21st century millennials. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. My goodness, is it out there. And then verse 17, have confidence in your leaders. Submit to, your, to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. It's a very sober thing to be a leader in God's beautiful church. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. Now, obviously, I've left chunks out. The passage, a beautiful, beautiful passage held together, I want to argue, around the vertebra of trust is around four big ideas. Can you trust community? Can you trust marriage? can you trust leaders, and can you trust Jesus? It's almost like it starts that way and unfolds itself and folds itself until the ultimate question, as this book is landing, can you really trust Him? And for 12 chapters, up until this point in time, the author is filling this scattered group of people, this diaspora of believers. I was thinking about it, and I hoped to get picture off the internet, but I'm just not clever enough, of the refugees who were, the Afghan refugees who were trying to get through the Pakistan border. And I was absolutely startled by the fact that I could imagine, um, you know, Dana and Stu and the kids are living with us, they bought a house, they're renovating. Could you imagine, with their two kids, they literally walk out the door one day, and I saw one family with one of those um, luggage, what do you call it, the little did you put it in the, in the, in the, in the carry-on hand, hey, carry hand luggage? Like I don't know why that slipped my mind. Here they are. Here's a family, a dad it looked like, a mom it looked like, three kids and one little roller suitcase. And I wondered, what did they leave behind? What did they walk out of? Did they lock the door? Did they leave it open? Did they say to friends, well, you guys can take the TV or the, leave the, the carpet or keep it. We make them. I mean, what was their thinking? And you and I have no reference for that whatsoever. It's completely outside of our sphere of influence. Think of those who are knocking on the door of our southern border, walking all the way from Honduras, Nicaragua, moms with babies, dads with families, traumatized by trying to keep your family safe and not be ripped off or raped. That, dear friends, is the context for this book. It's not a bunch of, can I be a little front and so not a bunch of white Christians sitting in a building. This was a bunch of Jewish exiles spread throughout the then known world. And Peter, out of his great father's heart, uh, sorry, um, we don't know who. Out of their great father mother heart, we're doing one Peter after this, uh, writes with great affection. And to understand this book is to understand what they're facing. They've left everything behind. They didn't buy an air ticket. They had to walk out, ride out, gather enough money to catch a boat out, be ripped off bandits on this side and that. And into that context, this beautiful heart. I mean, honestly, if you and I faced that, would we think Jesus is worth it? I've got a beautiful house here. I'm 63. It's taken Meryl and I from when we were married. I was 22 to accumulate the capital, and now we have a beautiful house in Costa Mesa. Could you imagine if I became a refugee and left my one-point-whatever-million-dollar house and walk, and I leave it all behind? And I have nothing. And the only reason is Jesus. All that I have to say is, I don't believe him anymore. Monsieur, please stay in your house, no problem. See? It's only Jesus. That's the only reason why you're being persecuted. All that you have to do is say no. And you stay. And you keep your job. Do you understand the beauty, mystery, wonder, complexity of this book? This is writing to a group of people who've lost everything. Literally walked out with what they could carry. And the author, that's why I think it's a woman who wrote it, with such maternal instinct, is writing almost on her knees saying, please don't forget these four things. And the first is community. Keep on loving one another. Millennials don't trust. Chris... Silesia from uh, Washington Post wrote a very interesting article simply reading, Millennials aren't, it seems, the trusting type. 2014, that's five years ago. It's out of date. Six years ago. Seven years ago. It's out of date nevertheless. All right, so I didn't do well at math at school, okay? I was a wordsmith. I I spoke my way out of of my degrees and whatever the case may be. But it's interesting then, and it's all changed, that the military and scientists were granted the highest level of trust. Church, not so much. Trusting, firstly, in community. Secondly, trusting in marriage. Thirdly, trusting in leadership. And fourthly, trusting in Jesus. We'll just deal with the first two this evening. My son, whom you know is 22, kind of keeps me marginally culturally aware and sensitive, showed me a guy called Bo Burnham. You were him? And in one of his lyrics, he writes, Is this heaven or a white woman's Instagram? I thought it was quite funny as well. Thank you, H.A. Is this heaven or is it a white woman's Instagram? We live in the surreal world. We paint an image that we want other people to believe we live in daily without necessarily the dark doubt that rages in our soul on occasion, without the complexity that we face every single day, we create these beautiful Instagram pictures with cool, sexy comments, and we wonder why it is that suicide has never been as high, anxiety and depression, drugs have never been so used in the nation because we're creating a world that we were never destined for. We will create a difference for community. And what the enemy has gotten right is he has ripped us out of community. So I've got community. I've got my three friends. Well, do you and your three friends worship like this? Do you and your three friends bear your soul? Do the three of you have the word taught to you? Osgin said this. In the age of the internet, it is said. It's the age of the self and the selfie. The world is full of people and the world is full of themselves. It's an age of... I guess he says, I post, therefore I am. Community has been ripped from our priority system. I, uh, someone said to me um, this past week, they said, you know, people criticize the church. Sometimes there's, val- there's truth in it, but they say, why do they, and they used another expletive, why do they poo in the well And then wonder why the water tastes so bad. You don't have the right to criticize something you will not give your lives to. Trusting in community is a high value. You know, I love the church. I really do. I mean, uh, um, I was at a, a thing with John Mark and John Tyson last week. And they were giving away. John Mark's written a new book. Live No Lie, John Tyson's written a new book called The Intentional Father, and Jefferson, whom I'd only met there, has written a new book. So they said, all right, who's been preaching the longest? Put up your hand if you've been preaching longer than five years, and I thought, this is going to be a long, long thing, you know? And eventually, after 25 years, my arm was still up, because I've been preaching for 43 years. Why? I mean, what the hell? Isn't it boring? Same old book, same old stories, same old stuff. Same old church. You know why I do? Because I love my daughters. God invariably speaks to me through my family. And when they were little bitty things, I thought I was going to have a son. And when my eldest daughter was born, major complexities, emergency cesarean section, her head came out like a cone. And uh, the OBGYN said, he's a girl, he's a girl, he's a girl, super confusing. But I fell in love with her. I held her in my arms for the first time, and I was absolutely compelled by her beauty. Truth be told, she was quite ugly. (laughs) She's stunning now, and she's done plenty of modeling, but she wasn't then. You see, something happened in my heart that captured me, that held me. And I can walk you through her life as seen through my eyes with her warts and all, her weaknesses, her brokennesses, her lies, when she was trying to hide away from me. I said, "Nas, listen, baby, can I tell you something? God is more committed to you than even I am. And even though I'm traveling and preaching all over the world, this I guarantee you, God will tell me what you've done. Just be honest with me. And he did. Many times. But you see, there was a day I walked her down the aisle. She was 18 years old, just turned. She'd just finished high school. The man she was marrying was the son of friends, six years older than her. And I didn't doubt it for a moment. But there was a poignant moment when we got out the car and it was an outdoor wedding and we walked towards the red carpet and it was all beautiful up in west, uh, East San Gabriel Valley. A friend of mine was the manager of the hotel up there. And um, as we got to the corner, she said, Dad, I have something for you. I said, okay. And she said, will you dance with me one more time? Because as a little girl, I would put their feet on my feet, put my arms around them, and we would dance around the lounge together. Na, 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 na. And she chose to walk down the aisle to Josh Groban's You Lift Me Up. You know the great old hymn? And we danced together one more time. Because I was taking her to a six foot four soccer player surfer and I wasn't getting her back anytime soon. Uh, hopefully never. But, but you, see, you see, all of those sleepless nights and she did not sleep well. All of the lies and deceptions and all the things that part of growing up meant drew me closer to her. My affection for her grew. And if I could do that to my biological child that somehow in God's grace and kindness He gave to me, how dare I fall out of love with the daughter, the church? Honestly, I've been hurt, probably worse than any of you, by the church. I could keep here a long time. But you see, when I got up at night and Meryl and I would sometimes from 2 o'clock in the morning, Nas would cry until 5 o'clock. We saw the sun come up. We'd have a picnic because she wasn't sleeping anytime soon. But the love conquered the vulnerable moments. What the author appeals to is the ability that we have to enjoy the love of Christian community. And folks, you won't ever discover the depth of it until you've been hurt by it. There is no such thing as the perfect church. There is no such thing as a place without pain. Ask Meryl, we've been married 40 years. But it's our ability to dig deep into find love, the nugget of beauty, wonder, mystery, affection that leaks its way out of all the stuff that can so easily swamp us. And I want to appeal to you today not to allow the pain and trauma that the church has offered you and let that be a stumbling stone. Dare I say, very kindly, I hope your love for her is very shallow. If someone being unkind to you can throw you, if a leader's word that has an edge to it can damage you, your love for the church is just not deep enough. There are four Greek words for love. You know that. Eros, from which we get erotic love. Storge, from which we get the parent-child love. Agape, from which we get the love of God towards us. It's a very self-giving love. But the word here is the word Philadelphia. It's a very deep love. And it's the love between friends. It's a brotherly friendship, one author said, and affection. It's deep friendship and partnership. And this is the word used in this Hebrews 13 one that helps us understand it's not erotic love. And that's beautiful. And I'll talk about that later. It's not storge love, which is the parent child. It's deeper than that. It has a, its own language. It's not agape love, which is self-sacrifice. It is a deeper one. I want to invite you in. If trust in the church has been eroded, can God give you that kind of love? Again, I have to move on. Secondly, hospitality, it's a beautiful piece, it's the church around the table. No one writes better on that than Rosario Butterfield in my mind. And then thirdly, prison, and it has both an actual sense and a spiritual sense. How are we doing time-wise? I haven't got time to tell you a really cool story. Yeah? Come next week. A friend of mine, when we were doing apartheid years in South Africa, we chose to resist it. It's very interesting watching the political system in this country. Apartheid was an overwhelmingly ungodly, unbiblical system in the suppression of black people by white people. And we could under no circumstance embrace the lifestyle. We had to act, so we marched. We sang songs. We preached against We prayed and fasted weeks at a time. The longest we fasted was for three weeks, the whole church. You, three weeks for South Africa. Amidst all of that, Terry, who was on team with me, met a black man, an activist. And um, they became friends. And uh, this man, whose name I forget, used to keep a suitcase at the door because he was going to get arrested. He just didn't know when. A little overnight bag. And one day, he didn't arrive for a coffee with Terry, so Terry got all of his family, said, where is, I think his name was Bongani, where is Bongani? Uh, he's been detained by the security police. Oh, said Terry, okay. So he went to the prison, and he said, I want to meet, go and see Bongani. Oh, no, they can't, you're not family. So Terry said, I demand to meet the highest level of authority. He got an appointment with the colonel. The colonel said, uh, Mr. Vishay, you have to understand, it's only family that can see the incarcerated well terry said you don't understand i'm his brother terry's as white as can be bogani is as black as can be the colonel had no he, he didn't know what to say he fumbled his word he said okay terry said the first time he walked into the room where visiting took place he was the only white man in a room full of black people and they viewed him with ultimate suspicion who is he is he part of the boss is he the man Every week he'd go into the townships, which were barricaded in. Cops at every entrance to the township. He couldn't get in and out. And he would go through with bags of groceries and for the family and gifts for the kids. Fast forward about 30 years. Terry goes back to South Africa, leads a church in Pasadena now, goes back to South Africa. And Peter Watt, a mutual friend, says, Terry, there's a man I need you to meet. In fact, he's here at this meeting, at this conference right now. So Terry says, hi, my name's Terry. This black man starts weeping. He says, you don't remember me, do you? Terry said, I'm sorry, I don't. I was Bongani's son. And he said, everything inside of me wanted to hate you, white bastards. But I couldn't. Because you were the only man who would go and visit my dad in prison. The only man who would bring my family groceries and bring gifts to us, kid. He is one of the leaders of reconciliation in the city. Because Terry went to visit his dad in prison. See, can I just be a little cheeky? Please don't BS me about the church. While well, you sit in your fancy car and your protected world and believe you are highly lifted up to be able to criticize the church. There are many people who are invisible to the naked eye. But whom Jesus sees who are captains of reconciliation, love, affection, sacrifice and service. I love the church. All right, moving on. Secondly, quickly, and I said I would just do two of the four today. Thank you. Sorry for, if I got a little bit cheeky there. I, I just, I just, it just exhausts me. People who do nothing and whinge and whine about the church, do something and then criticize. If you're not doing anything, just shut up. Just shut up, for heaven's sake. Okay, number two, big capital number two, trust f- in marriage. Um, I know I'll regret saying all of that, you know, the last two minutes. I'll toss and turn on that tonight. You know that. But that's okay. It's my problem. Trusting in marriage. What, why is this a thing? Because under pressure, our marriages are scrutinized. Under pressure, the, 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 the reality of, of a marriage and the cracks and the weaknesses begin to surface themselves. And there are three things that the writer identifies in marriage. Very interesting. Very interesting. The first is honor, the second is intimacy, and the third is generosity. He says this, honor, marriage. Honor, there we go. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. Now, what does that mean? What, what, is, what does that mean? Well, there's all sorts of fancy words that time is not my friend as normal. But, but I want to say this, dear friends. Marriage is honoring things from God's perspective. Manner is rec- uh, honor rather, is recognizing how God sees this. And why do we love weddings? Yes, the bride may be stunning, and she hasn't fed herself for three months, and she's got this tiny little thing in the hair that's been test-driven three or four times, as they come, and the makeup artist done it four times, and she didn't like that. And the guy stands up in the front, and he looks around, he starts weeping as she walks down the aisle. And every young girl says, oh. Oh, hope it happens to me one day. Now, that's not why we're compelled. Because prophetically, it's a picture of a future. At the culminating end of the ages, a bridegroom will fetch his bride, it will be the ultimate Cinderella story, he will burst out of the heavenly limitations, and he will break into, notice that oxymoron, he will break into project planet earth on his steed with his tattoos, as Driscoll said all those years ago, and he will with raging passion fight for his bride, and the Bible says he will gather unto himself from the four corners of the globe those who are his, it's the ultimate love story. It's between a man and a woman. It was in the garden. It will be in the garden recreated in the new heavens and the new earth. It means we speak well of with love and respect. You want to get married? Your language has to shift to that. I remember doing a wedding many years ago. I didn't know the couple super well, and, but, but I agreed to do it. And I was sitting at the reception and uh, the table kind of, you know, where the, the bridal party s- stood and, and, and the, the bridegroom stood up and he said, uh, well, hi, everyone. And she kind of tugged at his jacket and, and, and he turned and he said, there she starts nagging already. I thought, you're not going to make it. They didn't. Because the marriage isn't on it. Honor means to speak well of. Honor means to see what this person will become. Honor means to craft a marriage you want. In Meryl's therapy practice, they use this little phrase. I love it. What is it like living on the other side of you? What is it it like living on the other side of you? And the marriage is to be honored. Secondly, the marriage bed is to be pure. John Tyson says, the early church it's wonderful. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with their money and com- promiscuous with their body. The pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along. And they gave practically they came along and gave practically nobody their body. And they gave practically everybody their money. What a statement. Listen, John Meyer wasn't the guy... Oh, some of my notes are up there. I didn't, I didn't think they were available. Um, but, but, you know, that, your body's a wonderland. That should be a hymn we sing. Yeah, it's, it's from Song of Songs. A friend of mine was in the army. They were in patrol. He had a little Bible in his backpack. And one evening they were sitting around the fire... And he said, hey guys, hey guys, I've got something to read you. And he opens to the Song of Songs and he reads the king, the author's description of his wife. Oh, you used to see her eyes. Oh, my word, her neck, her breasts. See, body's a wonderland. Her navel. Oh, you must see her legs. See how quiet you are. Because that's as beautiful as what it is. My son said to me, Dad, you have to understand this culture. I said, Well, please help me. He says, you know, he said, you know, millennials sleep together and then decide if they're gonna date. I said, no, hang on, hang on, oh, oh, hang on. This is an old brain, receding hairline, barely wobbling. Tell me again. He says, no, we sleep together, and apparently he doesn't. He says, and then we decide if we're gonna date. That's not that. I'm stingy with my body. This is kept for someone else. It's not your sticky fingers. No, it's for you to pour them and, and, and put your hands in all sorts of places. That has been studiously, meticulously, and wholly kept for someone else. So are you just a little kind of boomer-esque. Oh, no, I'm not. I love the Bible. What's that? Yeah. And, and there's something just incredibly mysterious. Listen, Meryl and I were virgins when we were married. Our first married night, we were clueless. I mean, I walked, I arrived. You know, I'm like Mr. Stud. I got this. Never heard. No one counselled me. No, I read a couple of books. I got this. I'm a guy. I'm red-blooded male. I'm 22. I got this. I did not have it. I want you to know, I did not have it. I was clueless, and we had to, Meryl was 18, and, and, she, and, and we had to find our way together. It was an unfolding narrative of discovery, and then we didn't want to talk about it, so then it's super awkward, you know? Is that good? Isn't it good? I can't ask. What happens if she says it's horrible? So I'm not going to ask, and, and you know, it's like crazy, and it's an unfolding story 40 years later for which we are so grateful. Her body was a gift to me. Mine, I don't know if it was a gift to her, but I'm just going to pretend it was a gift to her. There is something incredibly spectacular. I've got to land. When we offer our bodies in this way, stingy with my body, stingy with it, but oh, I'm generous with my money. I give it all away. But this I keep for that great and glorious eternal partnership. Eternal because it's God-authored. In our dark times, I'm sure at least three times we could have gotten divorced. Normally because I was the jerk. But we didn't. Because there was something of eternity's fingerprint on our marriage. On my heart. There was eternity. And I don't, I'm not unkind to those of you who got divorced or have suffered horrible breakups. Not at all. That's where grace comes in. But I was so persuaded that God's fingerprint was on my heart. That he'd given me his daughter to nourish and cherish and serve and love and care for. It wasn't this gorgeous woman that was there for my sexual ego. It wasn't. And honestly, Meryl is stunning now. I, on, I can say with integrity, I think she's grown more beautiful over the years. But when I met her, she was 15. When we got married, she was 18. H-O-T. Like super hot. You with me? The author is inviting us into another story. Don't do as the world does. Something inside of you dies every time you sleep outside of the context of the marriage bed between a man and a woman. Paul says that. Don't join yourselves to prostitutes. Lastly. You okay? You don't mind me being a little passionate? A little bit cheeky? Lastly, money. It says here that I've learned to be content in all things. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because the Lord has said, never will I leave you nor will I forsake you. Russell Moore is a Baptist pastor. In fact, he was head of the Baptist University for many years. And he tells the story, and I'm landing. He tells the story of uh, adopting two kids from Russia. Now, tragically, the Russian orphans, not all of them, but these were, were emotionless. They'd never been held, cuddled, kissed, never been told how beautiful they were, how wonderful they were, that God's got a plan for their lives, never been prayed over. They were left oftentimes in their own dirt and filth and muck. And he said when he and his wife walked in for the first time and shown the two kids, two brothers that was allocated to them, they wept. They wept. They returned once all the documentation was done. And they went to these two little kids to whom they had begun to show emotion. And the two little kids were distraught because they had to leave. They couldn't take them with them. And he turned and he said to them, he said, I don't know why I did it, but the words came out of my mouth, I will never leave you or forsake you. His story is profound. The wrestles they had with the orphans and the challenges that it demanded. But you see, when this revelation, I will never leave you or forsake you, captures our hearts, these things seem so inconsequential, this portion is about money. I went to the Marketplace of Ideas in a place called Bride Magazine. Couples, couples have argued about sex and money since forever. The number one and two things couples say they fight about. While sex and money are the most important things couples get mad at each other for, there are other things. I found it so interesting. This is not a Christian you know, quoting Hebrews 13. This was simply the notion now what is the other way what is the other way the other way is this incredible world of contentment paul says in philippians 4:10 he says i rejoice greatly in the lord that i at last sorry that at last you renewed your concern for me indeed you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it i'm not saying this because i'm in need for i've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. Bob Mumford said in the 70s, I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. And I kind of agree. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. What am I landing in? Two big ideas as this letter closes. The love of community, and the love of marriage. Where are you lumping? As if this letter were written to you personally, where would you say, my family of origin stuff is so butchered, I'm not interested in marriage? Is it possible that God was to rekindle the, the possibility that you could get married, the possibility that you could have a 40, 50, uh, Carol and her husband who passed away a year ago, 55 years? 55 Yes, I've learned to be content in all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, it's trusting in community and it's trusting in marriage. Would you close your eyes, please? Father, I thank you for this incredible room of people. I love them so deeply. Forgive my passion where it represented you poorly or I said things that I maybe should not have said. But Lord, there is truth hidden in here that you are desiring to rekindle trust. Trust in community. Communities hurt me so badly, but dare I trust again. Trust in marriage. Although I have seen marriage so poorly, Jesus, if you value marriage that at the end of the age, that's what you are most looking forward to, the groom with with his bride, can you rekindle that in me? Can you give me that hope, that confidence, maybe even that joy? I wonder if some of the leaders would just come and stand alongside me here. I didn't know how to land this, to be honest. I tossed and turned, rewrote it, thought about it again. And I don't even know if this is the best way, but this is what I want to ask. I want them to say, not behind me, alongside me, if you don't mind. I want to ask you, can you be courageous enough and vulnerable, and I know it's very public, and, but we're going to land it in a moment. But I'm going to ask you, if you know that there is mistrust in your heart, Around those two things. Community. It's hurt me. D are you available? Yeah. I didn't know if you were the babies. Um, That the church has hurt you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It should not be. But it is. And it has been. And I honestly can understand why to some of you it's just not worth it. I don't even know why you're here tonight. But maybe there's an inkling that you actually want this to work. Maybe. Or, marriage as a trust. I mean, I've had people say to me, I was talking about church as a family in one of the churches I work with, and a guy called me over at the end. He said, please don't use that word. I said, what word? He said, family. I said, oh, why? He said, my family was so butchered it isn't one good thought. I cannot cope with a church's family. Never heard that before. But you see, folks, that's what times like this are for. We can say, God, is there any hope for me? Community and marriage, is there any hope? Can you come and unpackage a heart of mistrust, a heart of pain, of disappointment? I look at Chris, and he so loves the church. <sighs>